You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Waikit Lau, who has founded two machine learning-based companies that were acquired, and he helped take one public. He has been on both the venture capitalist and fund and operate side. On today's show, we talk about what was it like to go to Harvard Business School? How should one think of business school in general? How was the journey from starting a company to growing it to over 600 employees before taking it public? And what is your screening process to invest in in deals? This and much more on today's episode. And don't forget, write a review on iTunes and share amongst your network. It helps us and encourages us to create great content like this in the future. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Keith, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. And I'm super excited about this episode for all the listeners at home. Geoff Seon, who was a guest on one of our earlier episodes of the Silicon Valley podcast, I believe it was around episode 20 or so, he talked about outsourcing and engineers. He made this introduction. So with that, Waikiki, can you give a little background on your career up to this point for our audience? I grew up in Malaysia, born there, came here for college. First time I saw snow was in Boston. Malaysia is 100 degrees, 100% humidity every single day of the year. I thought I would enjoy snow until the first snowfall. And then the first month of snowfall, I thought I'd do four years of Boston and then go back to Malaysia. Since state then, I've been in Boston for the last 20 plus years. Over the course of that plus uh, 20 plus years, I've been mostly in technology, mostly in Boston, for, uh, except for a few years in New York City and Atlanta. I have spent time in big companies, in venture capital, have started three companies, Two got acquired. One was taken public. In the intervening years, I've done some angel investing here and uh, or there as well. So I feel like I've seen sort of the the boom in Boston back in the Route 128 days for most people who actually, for some people who actually know what that was. Most people don't, Route 128, but that was the first boom back in the, the 90s, the drought in Boston tech scene in the early 2000s, and then now the resurgence, if you will. In the last five, 10 years. But, uh, but that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Just for our listeners, you're one of those elite Harvard Business School graduates. Can you give us a little bit of information on that experience? And when someone does get an MBA or goes to business school, what should they be thinking about that process? What should they try to get out of it? I don't recommend business school for everyone. In fact, I was one of the few guys who were probably on the fence when I got in. I think I was browbeaten by a lot of people when I told them that I got in and I'm thinking, not, I'm thinking about not going. Ultimately, I decided to go because I felt like, you know, I was in my late 20s. Yeah, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, you know, in the next five, 10 years. You know, do I want to work in small companies, big companies, maybe get out of tech altogether and, and be on the investing side? So I thought, you know, the two years would be great to kind of figure, figure it out. I learned a lot, met a lot of interesting people, had a good time. My liver was very well trained in that two years. See, being an Asian, I, I, get, I, I used to get Asian flushes very easily, one beer. I'm good to go now. But it was good. So I think for people who are considering business school, I think, you know, if you don't, it really comes down to this. 
if you don't have conviction or a good sense of what you really want to be doing five, 10 years plus down the road, business school is a great place to spend two years to figure it out. I generally don't advise people to go to business school to learn about you know, accounting and the like. Because again, all those things you can learn on your own, you can learn on the cheap, you can take online classes. You don't need you know, fancy, fancy, expensive business school for that. I think business school is great in terms of opening up perspective and meeting people you otherwise would not have met. I mean, your classmates are the most elite of the elite. Can you share some stories about maybe some of the achievements that some of your classmates went on to do or some of your classmates in general, if you're okay with sharing that? Harvard Business School is a big class. Uh, Most people don't realize that it's 900 students a year. It's almost like college, right? Most business school classes are 100, 200, 300, maybe. So it's very much more intimate. So HBS is like going back to college. And because of the large class size, they can afford to really stretch and to, to fit people from all walks of life, all manner of experiences. Fascinating experience in terms of, again, meeting people that I would not have met uh, in my prior lives, right? Or in my current lives. So I've met, I've got classmates who work for literally directly for presidents right before they were an aide to the president of the United States, right before business school. I've had classmates who were, who started very successful nonprofits and certainly others that have started and exited very successful companies, but you also have folks who kind of come from non-traditional background. I've had a few classmates that come from the nonprofit world, but also entertainment world, Hollywood. There are a number of them had a very direct hand in some of the bullface movies that we all would know. So it's really cool, right? I think the other thing that was also cool is uh, just the geographic diversity. You know, with 900 people, you get to meet, I mean, people from pretty much every country, right? Folks who've grown up there, who have come here when they were younger, makes for very lively discussions in, uh, in a lot of the classes. And, and that, I would say, going back to your earlier question, I actually think, and maybe this is me, me being older talking, right? You know, as I get older, I look back to, you know, the business school experience. I always think that the stuff that are transactional, right? Learning about accounting, learning about finance, again, all those things you can learn on your own. The unique opportunities and the you know, the experiences, the share experiences with these individuals, you can almost put a price tag on that, right? Because those are experiences that are hard to replicate. Your classmates from Harvard, are you still in contact with most of them? Or after you graduated, everyone went on their own way? Still in touch with a number of them, although a small percent. I, I know friends of mine, classmates of mine who are uh, much more extroverted and are keeping in touch with more people. You know, I'd say I keep in touch with 10, 20 folks in the entire 900, right? I, I, I talk to them on a regular basis enough. The chance that I, I always look forward to is the five-year reunions, right? We just had one, well, we were supposed to have one this past year because it's our the 15th year reunion, 2020, but it was canceled, unfortunately, due to COVID. So, but I've been to every fifth-year reunion and Alumni network is so large, even within the class, that when I have time to keep in touch and get up to speed on people's lives, it, it's always fun. I think it's always it's interesting to kind of see how people's family lives and careers have kind of, you know, where, where it's taken them. 
And I could just imagine those conversations where people are going, I took this company public. I took, you know, I did this, I'm working with this president. I mean, just having been in the room with those conversations must be amazing. Now, after Harvard Business School, I believe you took a company public from zero to 600 people. Is that correct? Could you tell us about that journey? I was a young guy in a hurry. And one of the things I wanted to do was to start a company or start my second company back then. I thought that business school was not going to help. Long story short, I ended up going to business school because I decided you know, I could use the two years to just kind of think through the idea. After business school, I spent a small stint at a larger company uh, that was acquired by Cisco. And then I, I left shortly within the year to go start this other company called ScanScout. And what it was, it was, so this is circa 2005, 2006. It was a platform that indexes online videos so that advertisers could match or content owners and advertisers who buy ads content owners could match ads, relevant ads into the right content. So for people who understand, who knows Google AdSense, right? When you are reading a page on some web page, you're reading that page and you see some ads from Google, usually it's relevant to the page that you're reading. So we were trying to create the video equivalent for that, right? So we'll build all these crawlers, we'll crawl online videos, use machine learning to understand them and inject relevant ads into it. Now, we got really lucky from a timing standpoint. That was when YouTube and a number of other content creators started investing heavily in pushing content online, online videos. So we timed it in hindsight really, really well. So we grew the company from zero in 2006 to about 18, 20 million in revenue in four years in late 2010. We then very quickly uh, we were approached by a number of buyers, ac- acquirers. We ended up merging with uh, another private company in the space uh, with the hope of one plus one equals five. We would essentially combine the company and grow much faster, take it public, which we did three years after the merger that was in late 2013. So and then we took, basically took the combined revenues to about 100 and 120 million in 2013 and ended up taking it public in July 2013 in New York Stock Exchange. How much of it was a push from the internal team going, guys, I think if we partnered with this company, combined with them, there's all this synergy. How much of it was the investors going, hey, we want you to grow as fast as possible. Do this. We want our exit. From the investors, not so much an exit. It was that deal did not allow them to exit because the other company was private. So from the investor standpoint, what they really wanted was, you know, again, we were doing about 20 million a year. We were trending well, we were doubling every year. And the way they thought about it is that accelerate that even more. We have a good relationship with this larger company that we ended up merging with. It had very complementary strengths. We had really good technology, a small but growing sales team. They had bigger, much bigger sales team, really good sales team and sales management. They have a big bank role that just raised about $40, $50 million in the bank. And we, if we did not merge with them, we probably would then go raise a, a bigger round, like you know, 20, 30, $40 million uh, and, and do essentially do the same thing. So the net calculus ultimately was that uh, we felt that by combining, we could grow much faster and our slice of the pie would grow much faster. Now, that being said, there was, you know, in hindsight being 2020, when you're in the pilot seat at the point, right? There are a lot of ifs, 
right? To, to, you know, there are a lot of hoops to jump through to kind of check box and to get to that endpoint. We had just survived the 2008 crisis. Uh, I think we were I don't know, six months away from closing shop because we were out raising money at the peak of the crisis. Everyone has kind of batted. Luckily, we managed to raise around. So with that still fresh in our head, we basically said, you know, we need to make sure that the balance sheet of the combined company are really strong. So it took us about three years to get it to a really strong shape before we can present it to the public market. So end to end from two guys and the idea on the napkin to like us ringing the bell on the New York Stock Exchange floor is about, what is it? Seven to eight years, which is, I guess, pretty ap- like average for venture funded companies that end up going public. And sometimes, you know, these days companies are taking a little bit longer because they, they want to. Very interesting experience. I would say, you know, going public is not for everyone or every type of company because there are a lot of pros and cons. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, as a public company, revenue visibility is really important, right? So we had to spend a lot of time in that intervening three years after merger and before going public to really address the fact that we can build a pipeline that has very high quality revenue visibility. Because without that, you just can't, you're flying blind to public markets and you get punished for it. You got to go into more detail now. I mean, you said the positives and the negatives of going public. You got you to hit both sides. <laughs> we were in the ad market. So I'll give you an example. We had to pivot. Our business model before going public uh, or a few years before going public were very much in the ad network business. So ad networks are essentially brokers of buyers and sellers of ads, right? So the way it works is if you're a CNN and you want to sell your ad slots that your sales team did not sell, uh, you could come to us. Our sales team would essentially sell those ad slots into ad agencies and fill it for you. So, so you actually make, make money out of it versus it being a perishable good, right? That was the original business, the original business model for both the companies pre-combination and post-combination. As a private company, uh, that's a fine business model. But as a public company, that's a tough business model because ad agencies can cancel anytime. So even if you book a million dollars from PNG, PNG could turn around like next week and say, hey, you know what? We have spent 20,000 of the million dollars. We're going to cancel the remainder. And then they can do that. And this is industry standard. They can do that, do that without recourse, shift their budget. So by virtue of that, there's really very little revenue visibility because anyone can cancel. So what we did was that, and, and we started building this even before the merger was, and we realized this even before we decided that we could you know, potentially take this public, was we needed to move from that model into more of a SaaS business model, right? So which is instead of taking a cut or an arbitrage of the buyers and sellers, the ads, we would essentially license our ad serving and ad targeting platform to both advertising agencies and publishers like CNN. And we would initially take a hit on the amount that we can make, but we exchange, we essentially trade off top line revenue with better quality revenue or better visibility revenue with better visibility. So it took us about three years and more actually to do some of the pivot. When we went public, we were still at the tail end of that pivot. So, so there was a little bit of, when we were going public, there was a little bit of consternation just in terms of, do we wait a few more quarters or do we go out now? Because we are not quite fully a full SaaS company because we still have this other business. 
So fast forward a few number of years, and this is after I left. It actually, it turns out it took a few years longer than we anticipated. So uh, fast forward a few more years, they ended up shrinking the ad network business to enough of a size that they ended up spinning that out, selling that entirely. So the company rebranded after that. It merged with recently as of this earlier this year with another company called Rubicon. And, and now the combined company is on NASDAQ. It's called Magnite. On any good day, it's about $800 million in market cap to a billion dollar in market cap. It's one of the remaining market leaders in you know, sort of the ad-serving, ad-targeting space. In this process, as you're growing this company, I mean, you did take it from you know, small little team to 600 people. Were there any events that happened that could have just decimated the company? Or was it just smooth sail on the whole Oh, no way. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, no, we, we definitely had some events with a capital E. <laughs> Probably I'd say the scariest events were we got hacked and our bank account got drained. A meaningful amount of money got drained. And, and that was an interesting, you know, in hindsight, that was an interesting experience in the sense that we had a front row seat in terms of how hackers could just socially engineer they don't even need to do hard hacking. So essentially, we, someone in our finance department fell victim to a phishing attack, uh, phishing as in PH. She clicked on an email that was made to look like an email that came from Intuit. Uh, so we use Intuit as a counting platform back then. That email is none of these like your scam email that you get as a spam from so-called Nigerian prince with misspelling. Everything is done perfectly. You can't tell the difference. She clicked on it and it was, and this is what's fascinating. This is done by very sophisticated folks, right? And they certainly have done this before. They timed that email to be late Friday. The email landed around like 4 p.m. Our finance person logged in to that fixed site with her credentials at around 4.30. Friday, everything is, you know, people leave early at five. The adversary then logged into the account, the bank account, and very quickly in an hour, sort of late afternoon, transferred out $850,000. And here's the reason why they timed it that way. Because obviously in the weekend, our finance team don't check the bank accounts. By the time Monday rolls around, they check the bank account. It was too late. Those monies have been transferred to five banks around the world and then retransferred to a number of other banks. And this is something that we learned. Part of the investigation is, you know, different banks in different countries have no there's no standard banking contract, meaning that if you get hacked and the amount of money gets transferred, you know, three banks over, you're really at the mercy of the final receiving bank to believe you and to return the money. And most wouldn't because chances are you're not a customer. The person who's a recipient of that bank is a customer. They ended up involving the FBI and they kind of helped push the investigation along. But, you know, they were very transparent from the first call. And they're like, look, we ask them, what are the chances of people recovering a dime in hacks like this? I mean, they, they basically say, you know, 90% of the time, they don't see a dime back. And for precisely the reason, these guys who hack you, they know what they're doing. And by the time you discover it a few days later, it's moved far along enough that there's no recourse. So what ended up happening, we got lucky. Three out of the five banks actually returned the money. And that, even that surprised our FBI contact was assigned to us. And then the last two banks, they wouldn't return the money. We ended up, what ended up happening is this is the benefits of raising money from a big VC. One of the two banks, we ended up twisting the arm. 
big VC actually twisted the arm. They returned the money. The last bank, they just basically say, go pound sand. What ended up happening was that the VC then would go to our bank where we got hacked. And partly it was their fault as well because they have a limit. So we set the limit at $150,000. If you wire more than $150,000, $200,000, you get an alert, right? Or, or you need approval. What ended up happening is that uh, it turns out there's a loophole. You can wire multiple $150,000 within a day. So what good is that limit? <laughs> So our venture firm ended up going to the bank and that bank ended up making us whole. So we ended up actually make, being made whole, which is, yeah, super surprising. I mean, we, we were writing it off and I mean, we basically said like this could deal a mortal blow and we were prepping to go and raise more money because of this. It had a happy ending, but I learned a lot about how these guys work and, and what not to do and never trust. You got to look twice for, uh, for emails that come in that purport to be your bank. Chalk that up for another benefit of working with the right VC, right? A strong arm in the bank. That's incredible. Now let's go back to the IPO. When the company went public, there had to have been a lot of employees there thinking, okay, this is my big payday. As soon as I'm able to liquidate my shares, I'm going to go off in the sunset. Were you worried at all with that IPO that we're going to lose our top talent when this gets done? Or what was kind of happening at the company then? It's a common concern. And this is especially true for employees who've been there for a number of years, right? So like folks who've been there who are more, who've been there more than four years and they're fully vested and you know may want to go do something else. We were very generous in re-upping folks in terms of their restricted stock units once we went public. But but to be honest, even then a number of folks did leave within a year of going six to twelve months of a year of going public. Folks We've been there for like six, seven years or so from like early, early days. My philosophy and our philosophy at that point was we have to prep for it. Part of the IPO, the good thing about being an IPO is in and of itself is a marketing event. So in and of itself, it actually helps with recruiting. It helps with a number of things. So we basically use that to basically push our growth a little bit more in terms of staffing in anticipation of folks leaving. So we want to make sure that there's a good amount of overlap between like new, new blood coming in, sitting next to the old blood who may be leaving within like six, 12 months, we run a bunch of scenarios like on spreadsheets to kind of figure out, okay, uh, we do not want to be short staffed like, you know, six, 12 months after we go public. And then that in turn impacts the top line growth. That's interesting. I never thought about the Excel sheet model of thinking, okay, these people might leave, who'd replace them? How do we prep for this? And the people plan. And I always think about products or, or services. This is especially true for sales. I think the group that we were most concerned about was sales. In the ad world, rightly or wrongly, the way the advertising world works, take a microscope into the ad sales team at Facebook, Google, or anywhere else, is very relationship-driven. Those guys that sell to the big brands, the big agencies, I mean, these are folks who've just been in, this, in the world years and sometimes decades. So the thing that we fear most was a salesperson who is a top-performing salesperson leaving in a jiffy, like just, you know, here's my two weeks, I'm gone. And that impacting, you know, if that person's quota that for that month is, you know, multi-million dollars and something is, is not fully closed yet, him or her leaving now would essentially have some big impacts on that, on that revenue, on that top line. So that was a big piece, but we worried a lot also about across the board, marketing product, especially kind of key initiatives and things like that. Well, to dive deeper into that, how did you go about then incentivizing the salespeople so you knew more approximately 
when they would leave or if they would stay? A head of sales, we had a really good head of sales who was a great manager. And I think one of two things, right? He had very explicit conversations with folks about that. And he would ask in the quarterly review before we went out whether, hey, are you committed to at least staying for uh, a few more quarters, right? Or are you going to chat, you know, at some point soon? And he was pretty blunt about it and just, you know, just basically communicating to folks that like, hey, if you're leaving, that's okay, but give me enough heads up. I think that's just setting the tone to make sure that don't leave us hanging given within the first 12 months of going public. So we set certain expectations that do what you want to do, but do it, give us enough heads up. I think that helped. I think the other piece was also, I think within sort of your first question, right? Which is one has to do with the number of bodies, but the other one is just sort of motivation. It's making sure that, you know, people kind of look at their stock value, but we, we need to make sure that people are still hungry right, and motivated. As part of a public company, we actually redid the comp plan, the sales comp plan a little bit. It'd be a little bit more generous because now we're a public company. We want to incent people more. We tweak the accelerators, which is, you know, once you hit 100% of your quota and you go above your quota, right, you ought to be very handsomely, even more so rewarded for going way above quota. We tweak that just to make sure that people still have the financial incentives, even more so. After the company went public, when was it your time that you decided, okay, I'm going to step away from this and go on to your next venture? I left within the year. I talked to the board a while back before that, just in terms of my timing. Because when we merged the company three years prior to that, I was pretty open with them in terms of if we do have some sort of exit event, whether we get acquired, we go public, all else being equal, I'll probably stay a few months to a year. If you need me to, I'll be flexible. If you don't need me to, you know, I may stay a little bit uh, shorter time period. When it came time, my group has grown enough that they actually, they didn't really need me. The group was self-sufficient. And I think it was better to even have another person to kind of edit with a different, potentially a different lens or perspective. So I stayed a few months after it went public, once all the transition was planned. By that time, I spent about yeah, seven, eight years on this and I was pretty burnt out. Honestly, I, this is on top of the long hours, for that seven years, I was spending pretty much every week, at least one or two days on the Excel between Boston and New York. What I didn't mention was in the early years of the company, I think year end of the first year, early second year, we decided to start a New York office. So Boston was great for recruiting tech talent, but for business talent that had good exposure to the ad market, you have to be in New York. It was really hard to hire in Boston. So very quickly, we were forced to open up an office in, in New York. So for a long time, Boston and New York were sort of the two centers of, you know, the sort of the mothership. Boston was where the product was built. New York was where the product was sold and marketed. I would be among the CT, you know, the senior team, the CTO, me and a few other folks. I would be on the train like every week. I would often, I would take the first train out. I lived in the city in Boston, you know, I'd just 15 minutes walk to the train station. I'd catch the five. 40 a.m. train gets me in at 8.30. And then I'll be there until I take the last train back at 7 p.m. Sometimes I'll stay overnight. So I did that for a good six years to seven years. I gained a lot of Amtrak points. Uh, I, I think at some point I, I had like, like more than, a, I don't know, like high tens free trips on Am Amtrak. And I uh, gave it away as a Christmas gift. Kind of draws on you quite a bit. So I was very looking forward to just not traveling, <laughs> not being on the train. 
And then afterwards, you did a couple of angel investments from my understanding, 20 to 30 startups. In that process, kind of what was your screening to decide whether to invest in a deal or, or not? I probably did not screen the way I should have. I think a lot of these were ex-colleagues or folks that I know. It was essentially a way for me to support what they were doing. And you know, a lot of them were folks that I highly respected. I was of the mindset that it doesn't really matter what they do. Like they could be building garbage bins for I care. These guys are capable and smart enough that I trust them enough that I support them by investing a small amount. And in the course of that, I got lucky a, a number of times. And certainly, I wouldn't say it was through uh, design. I think it was more through luck. These were the folks that I've known for a while and you know, guys that I would invest in in a heartbeat regardless of what they're doing. Can you share a couple of stories maybe, or at least a story that impacted you of one of the companies that you invested in? I'll give one that I know business investing in. It's a company called Ginkgo Bioworks is a synthetic biology company in Boston. What they do is this. They apply... So there's a bunch of computer scientists from MIT. And it was started by, among a few co-founders, it was the main co-founder. The main founder is Tom Knight. Tom was for a long time, a principal investigator, researcher, and a sometime professor at MIT. And, and Tom's reputation precedes him. He has mentored and advise a lot of PhD students. In fact, I have an interesting story I'll tell about Tom in a second if I have time. But Tom is one of these big brand names that doesn't matter what Tom does, right? Whatever he does, it's going to be really groundbreaking. I didn't really know Tom well. I was acquainted with Tom, but one of my ex-co-founders, my first company, knows Tom really well. So in 2014, my friend calls me up and says, hey, you know, I'm thinking of investing in Tom's new thing. It's in biology. I'm like, what's Tom doing in biology? He's like, oh, no, no, Tom has spent the last 10 years, you know, he was bored by computer science and electrical engineering. He spent the last 10 years taking all the classes in chemistry and biology at MIT and Harvard. And now he basically is on a mission to, to basically solve, you know, how do you hack biology? Why can't you do genetic engineering the way you build software? So he did a lot of seminal work in terms of some of the mechanics of large-scale genetics large-scale mechanics of how do you not just, not just genetically engineer a yeast cell, for example. Let's say you genetically engineer a yeast cell to produce rose oil. Okay, great. How do you then produce a huge quantity of rose oil right? so that it can be economically viable? So when he started, well, the company's been around for five years, survived on DOD funding, and then they were attracted to become the first biotech company in Y Combinator, 2003, 2004. And then they were raising the first round. Talk to my friend. I'm like, if Tom is doing it, I'm in. It doesn't really matter what it is. I don't know what synthetic biology is, but I'm in. In the last, what, six, seven years, they've grown to become a behemoth. They are, uh, at one point, I'm not sure if it still is, it was the highest valued private company in Massachusetts. I think the last round put them, pegged them at about $5 billion in valuation. Now, of course, my check size is tiny. I wish it was. Not so tiny in hindsight. Now, you'd mentioned MIT there. You have a little bit of connection as well with MIT with the boot camps. Can you share what you've done and some of the takeaways that our listeners could learn from those boot camps that you held? My last company after going public, uh, you know, 014, I took a little bit of time off. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I just had my first 
child. And the deal with my wife was I can't do any startups for the next N number of years until like a kid's a little bit older, right? So no more like 18 hour days. So I said, great. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll advise, I'll do some angel investing. And I, I was still hooked into uh, deeply involved in the MIT community. I was mentoring companies uh, and the like, and I got pulled into someone in, uh, had donated money to start this entrepreneurial center at MIT a number of years before. And so they have this building where it was this cross interdisciplinary department, if you will, about entrepreneurship. And they were doing a lot of seminars, a lot of classes, not full full credit classes, but these were sort of like, you know, boot camps here and there. Professor Bill Ouellette, who was a professor at Sloan School, was the one who was doing a lot of these boot camps in conjunction with a number of folks out of the MIT's Office of Digital Learning. I got roped in to mentor and to teach a couple of the classes. And they started off basically saying, hey, can we do a, a week-long, two-week-long boot camp as the capstone in-person class? The M- MIT online learning classes. So MIT and Harvard has this online learning class for the last 10 years called edX, for example. So in edX, every season, I think there's about 10,000 plus 10,000 folks take those online classes. So what they wanted to do was at the end of the two to three month online class, you allow people to apply for an in-person class for a week and you have to pay, right? Uh, and half of them, you know, you apply for scholarships. The other half, you have to pay. And then you show up at MIT, you know, we run you through a week long worth of how do you start a company? How do you finance a company? How do you recruit? How do you grow? How do you think about business models and things like that? This is very much Startup Frameworks 101. They started that in 2012, 2013. When I started helping out, it was 2014, 2015, and the like. So uh, did it in Boston, and then they started replicating it in a few other countries. And they started doing it in Korea, in Australia, in Turkey, and the like. Uh, so I did it for a couple of years. It was fascinating. It's probably one of the best gigs I've ever had, just from uh, a learning perspective. I do remember this. Uh, there was uh, the last session I had. It was in Korea. And so they admit about 70 to 100 students from around the world to fly there. I remember this distinctly. There, were one, there was one guy from Syria, from Aleppo. I'm like, and this is before it got really bad. This is just the beginning. The rebel forces and then the Syrian government so that he could still leave. I remember having this conversation with him, right? He's like, I'm like, Wow. And I can't remember. He owned, I think he owned a number of cell phone repair shops at, in, in Aleppo. I was just asking him, wow, like how dangerous is it now? I keep you know, seeing things escalating, like, you know, like people accidentally get shelled, like groups of people will die. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, but what can I do? He's, I'm like, you're going back. Right? He's like, yeah, I've got family there. You know, I've got extended family there. And most people do. So you, 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 know, you just can't pack up and leave. And I've always, since that year, I've thought about him and thought about, you know, sort of his family and like how he has, they've done. Hopefully they've been saved all these years. Yeah. So you meet all these really interesting people for whom we have our brand of entrepreneurship in the US, right? Very tech centric, very, you know, as you talk to folks from other parts of the world, you know, their brand of entrepreneurship could be very different. Like here it's all VC funded tech. Other places in the world and equally as valid. I mean, it could be, you know, someone might own a fleet of taxis and do very well. And it's a different form of entrepreneurship and, you know, not innovation per se as we understand it, but, but innovation nonetheless. That, I enjoyed that a lot. That was really cool. I really liked the global perspective of that program. So, so yeah, so I was doing that until last couple of years until I started uh, my uh, recent company. 
Okay. So obviously you couldn't take a break. You needed to start a, a new company. <laughs> Can you tell I, us? I did what, take a few years. <laughs> tell You got to tell us what this new company yeah. does, uh, your vision for it and all the possibilities. In my last company, we grew to, as, as, as you mentioned, hundreds of people, 13 offices around the world. Uh, I spent a lot of time on trains. Other people spent a lot of time on planes. When I left the company, one of the things that I, as I kind of thought back was, you know, it was so silly. Our travel and entertainment expenses were so high. Um, not just flying people to see clients, but also flying people so that, you know, people can get in a room and brainstorm and do work together that you can't do remotely. In my head, this is, you know, 2017, I was thinking about this problem again. I said, this is so silly. You know, here we are in 2017. What is the best that people can do? We can video conference and we can Slack, certainly. Uh, but if you want something more immersive, the most immersive methodology is you can video conference and you can screen share. And I think about it, that's a 30-year-old invention, right? Like nothing about video conferencing and screen share has been innovated upon for the last 30 years, right? Since the 90s. The quality has gotten better. You can fit more people in it, right? Uh, Zoom definitely did push the envelope alongside, you know, even more. It used to be less reliable. Now it's a lot more reliable. Great. But it's still very much all about communication. Right? You think about all the things you can do in the physical space, in the physical office with your colleagues. Being able to see each other and hear each other and see what's on each other's screen is a small percent of all the collaboration modalities you can do. So we basically said, it's got to be a better solution. So let's reimagine and redesign what people could do virtually that just like they could do in, in real life. So we started building a platform in late 2017, early 2018. We called Remote HQ. You can check it out at remotehq.com. And the idea is really, we call it the virtual office, right? We're building essentially what is a virtual office. And obviously this is pre-COVID, right? Our world, was, I mean, our thesis was as more and more companies go remote. And we were seeing a lot of this in the last few years before COVID. Small and medium-sized companies in all the major metropolitan hubs, they find that they can, especially tech companies, they can no longer compete in terms of hiring with the Facebooks and Googles of the world because they're paying too much and they, you know, startups can't pay enough. They have to go where the talent is, where the equally, if not better talent, but cheaper right? in the Midwest, in smaller metro areas or internationally. So when they do that, the stack that the technology stack that most people use is now adequate. They need a brand new stack that replicates all the things they could do if they were in the same office. So that's where we fit in. Right? We build a platform that allows them to stay in touch, collaborate deeply, being able to, you know, and we have video conferencing embedded uh, in it as well and with screen share. But the more exciting things is that we allow people to collaborate in deeper ways that you can't just with video conferencing. So we allow people to whiteboard, to take notes together, to collaborate. Or, you know, we can turn any web application instantly collaborative. People can actually control a single application together as if you're in the same room. Kind of our, that's kind of my day job today. Okay. And with that, before we wrap up, in your whole journey, how do you look at problems? And with problems, have they changed over the years as you've had more experience growing companies as those companies have scaled? Pace of innovation has accelerated over the years. I think there are certain themes that over the last 15 years, I think have gotten stronger, which is, I think one theme is, I think COVID is accelerating that, but I certainly think that it was there even before COVID, which is Silicon Valley, while still important and still a hotbed of innovation, is not going to be the only game in town. I think as you look, not just across the US, but across the world, 
there are some very interesting companies and very interesting technologies and very interesting research being done in some of the least likely of places, not your usual college research university towns or cities, certain other sort of cities, but with somehow they form a core group of talents. So I think we're going to continue to see that. We're going to continue to see the decoupling between what people work on and where they want to live or where they work versus where they want to live, which I think until COVID came along, I think it was not as socially acceptable. But now with COVID, now that people have tasted the fact that, look, if I'm going to be working from home every single day and I'm okay with that and the company is okay with that, why, should I, why do I need to be in Burlingame? I can be in Montana. Better standards of living, cheaper, more space. Why not? We've seen that before. I think that's going to accelerate even more. Uh, we're certainly seeing that on a daily basis now. If anyone wants to find out more about you, your new company, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yeah. So the best way is go to our website, www.remotehq.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to drop me an invite or drop me a message on LinkedIn. If you want to reach out, that's probably the best way. Great. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And once again, Waikit, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. And I also want to thank Geoff Seon once again for making this great introduction that allowed today's episode to take place. And for all our listeners, please share, go on iTunes, write a review. It encourages us to create great content like this in the future. So once again, Waikit, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 